And we're back. It's 2012, and we're still without an introduction piece. Extreme close-up on my face. Name is Name is style. Thank you. This was our introduction to our second episode. Brett is letting me do the intro for this. Uh, you just probably heard our last episode in which we talked about the nine Best Picture nominees of 2012, the 85th Academy Awards. And now we're back. We're going to be talking about four more films that were not nominated for Best Picture and a couple of honorable mentions. And as always, our own personal nominations, which are always fun because they cause a lot of headaches for me because there's so many things to nominate. So starting us off is Christian. Christian, hello. Hello, Christian. (laughs) It's late and I'm talking to myself. So the first film that we have and that I picked is Francis Ha, directed by Noam Baumbach. I will say that before picking this, I did not know that Greta Gerwig was Golden Globe nominated for 2013 movies, but because this was not nominated for any Oscars, we are considering it at 2012 as it uh, was first put out into the world in 2012. Also say our uh, lovely Twitter Twitter followers helped us pick this one as well. Oh, yes. Thank you to our Twitter followers. So we put a poll out there. Normally we do six different movies, but we only did four because there's already so many Best Picture nominees. Anyway, so this film is about Frances Halliday, Frances Ha, played by Greta Gerwig, and she is 27 years old, although she honestly feels like she could be anywhere in her 20s. This movie is so relatable. She goes pretty much uh, friend to friend, couch to couch, just, you know, trying to find her way. She doesn't really have a job. She has her alma mater at Vassar, and her friend is sort of having her own life agenda, while Frances is kind of just, I would say, what's the word, loitering around. Um, She hasn't grown up yet, and that's my opinion. That's the best way to describe it. Again, this is really like a late coming-of-age film for me. Frances is such an adorable character. I felt really connected to her. Greta Gerwig does such an amazing job with it. It's also very sad if you're like me and you're still questioning life and what what's out there in store for it. Um, I'm so glad Twitter picked this. It's such a very popular film amongst people like millennials. Mm-hmm. So great performance from Greta. Adam Driver's in this very briefly. Also, I want to point out, let me get the name right, Mickey Sumner, who is Francis's best friend. I loved her performance. Sophie, yeah. Yes, Sophie. I loved her performance in this. More on that when we get to our personal stuff. Ooh, Spoiler alerts. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. What's everybody's thoughts? Interesting. I, I first saw the trailer for this, and... Maybe it was my love of Bowie and that song because it's that scene where she's running across the streets and they're playing Modern Love over it, which I heard is a remake of a French film. I don't know the name. But um, I was excited to see this. Um, not a fan of Bombach's mumble, mumble uh, core movies that he's done in the past, but... Um, seeing the trailer for this made me want to see it. And it was all about Greta Gerwig and just capturing the character. 
on screen and making me want and anticipate to see it. And when I did, um, I think I saw it at Glenwood Arts, to tell you. I, I was pleasantly surprised, and um, I just think it's a nice, refreshing departure from the typical independent films that were made, especially within her inner circle. Um, her character is clumsy. She's whimsical. Uh, she's not quite grown up, like, like you said, mm -hmm. uh, Christian. And I, I always say that the alternate title for this movie should be <laughs> adulting. Um, what, how she picks up and goes, um, the, the big trip that she makes, it's like something where you see a character just trying to figure out life and failing and persevering all at once. It's great. I love yeah, it. Um, I've, this is the second time I've watched this and the first time was like just a year ago. Um, I always say that it's almost like Ladybird is a spiritual prequel to this film. Um, although Noah Baumbach directed this and Greta Gerwig directed Lady Bird, you can see the parallels in that character. It's almost like Lady Bird grew up and this is her. And part of that is because, I mean, uh, Baumbach and Greta Gerwig are a married couple. And so I think it's, yeah, and she co-wrote it. And she co-wrote it. So I really it. think that she really, this is obviously a Baumbach film, but Greta Gerwig has her hands all over this thing. Um, you know, with the script that she wrote. Oh, yeah. This is more hers than it is him. Yeah, I was just about to say, I, I, I don't even see this as his film. I think it's his film because he gets the directing credit and he was, mm -hmm. between the two of them, the more well-known. I, I really think it's her film from mm -hmm. um, writing it, co-writing it to starring in it. It's really knowing where she is now um i really yeah. think this was her coming out as far as being in the yeah, i mean this was the me. first time i recall hearing of greta gerwig was when this film came out and i didn't even see it when it came out i just remember it being like a big like a bit a really good indie film that i heard a lot about and so yeah shot in black and white which i really appreciated um just because I like black and white movies, but it just, I don't know. It just felt right. And I don't really know why. I don't know. It just, <laughs> just feels, feels right. right. Yeah. I think anybody can connect with Francis in this movie. Um, that not knowing what to do and the anxieties that come about because of that. But also it's, it, it's so inspiring to see her continue to go after what she wants as well in a way that is not too over the top, like, I don't know, ultra inspiring cheesy pick, but a way that is like, she's facing a lot, but she's got a good attitude. She's continuing to try. We're left with hope at the end of the movie. And Gerwig just delivers this fantastic performance that allows for all that. So, so this film once again was not nominated for any Oscars. She did get the Golden Globe nomination a year later. I think it was. I think it's because of the release too. It was released almost more like once it started uh, gaining notice, it was almost yeah. like it was a 2013 yeah, sure. film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it played the festival circuit and whatnot. And so a little confusion there as there always is. But any other thoughts on Francis Ha? I'm just glad that Twitter picked it. 
it is on Criterion too, which is very interesting. But I mean, well deserved. Well, I, I think they have some kind of love for those type of movies, and I think out of all of them, this is probably the best of them. So, if there's going to be a Criterion to address that genre and have it for posterity, mm. this would like be like in terms it. of like the mumblecore films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Definitely worth checking out. And if you're at all confused about the title, just wait. I really love the way they come across it, but I'm not going to spoil it. So, okay. Moving on to oh, our next I, film. Oh, sorry. I did, I did forget to say that Obama called it <laughs> a, a, what is it? A true meaning of God or something like that. Like proof. An elegant proof of God. leftover joke from the last podcast if you didn't listen to it okay our next film one that i think is um one of the more critically acclaimed in some circles but did not receive that many nominations is the master from director paul thomas anderson there is a lot of debate about what this movie is actually about um, but centrally, the plot um, centers around Freddie Quell, who is played by Joaquin Phoenix. He's kind of this drifter who has um, been in World War II and is now going out into the post-war United States, kind of doing some odd jobs and manual labor along the way until he comes into contact with Lancaster Dodd and Dodd's family. He's played by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. His wife is played by Amy Adams. Great performances there. But Lancaster Dodd is the leader of this movement that they refer to as the cause. A lot of people have said that this is a kind of direct reference to Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard. It basically has these ideas about what life is and that we've kind of reincarnated from past lives and that there are ways to fix illnesses that don't require medical treatment and so on and so forth. He's a doctor, but yeah. Anyway, he kind of takes in Freddy as part of his group um, experiments with Freddy because he's so interested in him and just is damn determined that he knows Freddy from somewhere, which is kind of a behind the scenes kind of plot point throughout. But it kind of comes into this conversation of whether, you know, is Freddy worth trying to help in this way or is he a lost cause as Amy Adams character would say, it's not worth dedicating our time to this. They only received three nominations, um, all in acting. Joaquin Phoenix for Best Actor, uh, Amy Adams for Supporting Actress, and Philip Seymour Hoffman for Supporting Actor. KB, I know you also thought of this film when we were thinking about films we might talk about. What are your thoughts? Well, I know anytime we talk about these uh, Best Picture nominations where there's one missing, there's always like, well, what would you have put as a 10th film? And I would have definitely put The Master as number 10. Um, this is one of those films that every time I watch it, there's something more I learn about it or something else that I see. Uh, you mentioned the L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology comparison, but the more I look at it, there's also elements of Orson Welles, maybe not directly, but indirectly. Um, I mean, the Scientology comparison is straightforward. But uh, going back to film school, this is one of the uh, films that we examined. 
And it's really interesting that, you know, like Quentin Tarantino is known for ripping off, borrowing from different movies and everything. And this is one of the times that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson actually did the same thing, but he would never be revered or chastised in the same way as Tarantino is. So um, there's four movies that he really borrowed from to make this one. Uh, there's this movie called Let There Be Light, which is about disillusioned uh, World War II vets coming home. And he actually even uses the exact mm. same dialogue. So this is pure, if you want to say ripping off or whatever, but it's not seen that way. Once again, um, The Seventh Victim is about cult following. And this was before the existence of Scientology. Nightmare Alley, which is about running away from poisoning someone, as we see early on in the film, where Joaquin Phoenix does with the um, the old, uh, like, bum kind of like man. And then Melvin and Howard, which there's even a scene from Melvin and Howard with the motorcycle across the desert. But in that movie, in that movie, there's an examination of the two men in it. And I think that's part of the reason that this movie just keeps, it's like it keeps revealing more and more layers to it. The relationship that is between uh, the Joaquin Phoenix character and um, the master, as he likes to call himself, is almost like two sides of the same coin, like, you know, genius and madman, but it's also like he's that son that he never had because in a movie, his own son is not a believer we come to see so it's it's almost like he he pulls that from him excellent performances all around you already mentioned uh amy adams and joaquin felix and hoffman but um early appearance by uh christian's friend rami malik there and <laughs> which watching it this time just a few days ago i, I this is like the third time you I've didn't seen mind. i forget he's in it you didn't mind it, though. Tell the truth. No, nah, he's fine in it. Yeah. But I, I think there's great cinematography also. There are some scenes uh, in the beginning part of the movie that are almost like picture frames uh, when he's on the boat coming back from war and everything like that. So this is one of those films with high rewatchability, as we were mentioning in the last episode where a certain film didn't have rewatchability aspects to it. This one has the exact opposite. I think it has a lot of rewatchability because you could get into the various characters and what they're getting out of this whole cause thing. And then you could get into the comparison and so forth. So there's a lot here. Nice. And I, I love it. I didn't like this the first time I saw it. And I think it's because I was young. And really didn't, I mean, I honestly didn't get it. I watched it two years ago for the first time since then. And this was after having watched many a documentary over Scientology. And because of that, I was able to understand this so much more and so much better and appreciate it a whole lot more. I personally feel that, yes, it is totally about Scientology. It's Paul Thomas Anderson Paul Thomas Anderson saying this is kind of a ridiculous quote-unquote religion. Apologies to our Scientologists listening. If they are any, I don't know, they ain't going to tell us. They're all captured with, uh, what's his name? 
Tom Cruise. Anyway, um, and then watching it a few days ago again, I really noticed the performances, in particular Joaquin Phoenix, who's uh, great, and then Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I think is like mm-hmm. beyond and above great. Like Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman in this is so fucking amazing and so talented. Like I would yeah. follow his little Rest cult <laughs> if given the chance. And Rest in peace, Philip Seymour Hoffman. There's also one scene, and it's a very prolonged scene, and it's, I want to say it's in the third act. It's when Freddy is sort of finally saying, yes, I'll do your test, or whatever, and it's a montage where it's like, go to this side of the wall. What is this side of the wall? Go to the other side. What's this side? And then you're going to stare at Rami Malek, and you're only going to focus on him. You can't move or anything. And it's like a 15-minute long prolonged scene and I noticed it for like the first time ever I'm like damn this is some great filmmaking just like right here in this one particular scene alone Mm -hmm. that's from that's borrowed that's one of the things that he borrowed from uh, I want to say the seventh Mm -hmm. victim with the cult following like even where he's like walking to the wall and this is a wall and he's getting mad and then you know it's back and forth and by the end of the montage he's totally changing his mind about it But the whole thing about that is you get enraptured in that moment. So you don't really realize unless you're looking at a timer to see how long that montage is. I've said this is the third Paul Thomas Anderson film that we've talked about on this podcast. Uh, Magnolia, There Will Be Blood, and now The Master. I have often said that I am like 50-50 on Paul Thomas Anderson. Like half of what I've seen I really like, half of the other I don't like. The, The scale is tipping. I really like it. Um, the first time I saw this, I was like, what the hell? This is getting like all the attention. I was 17, you know, um, had no experience to film analysis and like reading a film beyond um, the what is overtly given to us. Now that I've kind of have that, I really, really appreciate it. So maybe I need to rewatch Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread because there's the other two that I don't really like, but he he's definitely uh, the the typical auteur where you know the use of the same collaborating with actors and the one thing that i find throughout all his films yeah. is you can't take it at face value you can't you can't really absorb it the first time you watch it he makes films where you have mm-hmm. to go back and you have to analyze it and you even have to analyze your approach to the film yeah in order to appreciate it. Is he my favorite? No, but at the same time, I can appreciate the artist that he is. He doesn't make single layered movies. He doesn't make things that are very uh, surface level. You really have to get in and examine the the deep levels exactly. of what Plus he Plus he pairs with Johnny Greenwood for his musical scores and they are always just exquisite. Um, when I was watching this, like I, I don't recall another turnaround in my perception of a film from the first time I watched this to now. And like, I always write notes for these films that we watched. I just like, I covered my phone with notes with this. And I came to the point where I'm like, I really want to like, think about what does this mean to me? And so, like I said, there's a lot of differing viewpoints about what this film is about at its, you know, its subtext and its core. And I came up with three things. One, 
belonging, you know, finding a place. I always think it's, it's interesting that for a lot of the film, it seems like Freddie Quell is like obsessed with sex and he is, but the last shot, you know, is not of him with, you know, having sex. It's him like curling up next to a certain woman. I'm not going to say who it is. Um, so I think he's like kind of searching for belonging. Another thing that I got was that, um, Oh, that, um, they get, they keep going back to this idea of like reincarnation and past lives. And we keep seeing like Dodd says, I know you from somewhere. I know you. And although he eventually has a pretty straightforward answer, I think Freddie Quell is more representation of a parts of Lancaster Dodd that he has either hidden or completely got rid of. Exactly. Yeah. Two sides of the same coin. That really stuck out to me. Um, I had something else I could go back and forth about the difference means this, but Oh, the scene where he is like photographing the people in the mall. I thought it was a really interesting exploration of like how we look back on the post-World War II era with a lot of nostalgia, how it seemed like a really good time. And you see that through his camera lens, whereas outside of the camera, everything is haywire and it's dark and it's kind of, it's not so great in the post-war life. And so, I don't know, I really got into this movie, so I apologize for the such detailed film analysis, but it was also forgot Laura Dern was in this and anything she's in is worth a watch there's also another scene in this and it's amy adams i mean it's the one they showed every time she had a clip but it's when he's lancaster dodd is typing on the typewriter and she's like we need to go out and attack them and again with the scientology parallels like if you know anything about scientology if you say anything shitty about scientology they're going to find you and attack you so again and also, if you've read the stories of like Paul Thomas Anderson showing this to Tom Cruise and them going at it, but remaining friends, it's like, I wish I was in that room. That's yeah, how did that happen? Okay. Um, anything else on The Master before we move on? It demands to be watched Watch again. it again. Okay. Our third film. They're going to be talking about a little bit that was not nominated for best picture from another uh, very popular director with a similar last name, Wes Anderson. We have Moonrise Kingdom. This is the story of a adolescent boy and girl who um, are kind of like outsiders. The boy is part of this like boy scout troop, but he doesn't really fit in with the rest of the kids. They see him as kind of weird. He's also been passed around from home to home as his orphan. And then this girl is often seen as like violent and very strange, but they, they just connect with each other. She's got this home life, but her parents don't get her at all. And so they come up with this elaborate plan that they're going to, escape together and go to this little beach area and live out the rest of their days kind of in the wilderness and be together rather than around all these people that just do not connect with them. It's a very short film. It only received one nomination for best original screenplay, which is very much deserved. Um, Yeah. A really, really nice watch from Wes Anderson, which is what 
he's great for. And so thoughts on this movie. I remember when I was invited to go see it by friends and then they took back their promise and saw it with other friends. Ooh. Ouch. Damn. No. Um, again, really good movie. Is it my favorite Wes Anderson? I think it's very much up there. It has all his signature style. By signature style, I mean, if you know Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. he has literally a style, a methodology to present everything. The color palette in this is the color yellow, much like in Grand Budapest, it was purples and pinks. Um, it's, again, a really short film, a really cute film. Uh, while we talked about Francis Hall's like, coming-of-age film, for a certain age demographic, this again, another coming-of-age film for like prepubescent teens, finding first love, sort of Romeo and Juliet style as well. Um, adventure, there's a young Lucas Hedges in this, which is really weird to see. He's such a baby in it. There's a dog, and there's an incident with the dog. Oh my <laughs> God. Some, somebody must have... Somebody must have took Wes Anderson's dog away from him as a child. I forgot about it when I saw it. Um, but no, I really like this, and I really like the production design on this, and it's because of those yellows, and the music is so good in this. Music's good in every Wes Anderson film, but yeah. Yeah, um, speaking to that single nomination, it is probably one of his, I, w- I would say it's his best written uh, top three. I want. I don't know. I, I like everything that he puts out except Isle of Dogs. And I I just think it's so well written. Um, that thing that you were talking about, Christian, is mm. the one point perspective that he got directly from Stanley Kubrick. Uh, so this this movie just, this is where he's at the top of his game even after the movies that he's done afterwards and uh, prior to this, this is probably the most uh, well-adapted one-point perspective as far as framing everything in the picture. Great actors all around. Um, a lot of his uh, collaborators that he normally goes with, like Bill Murray and Schwartzman, but also some people that you didn't expect, uh, Bruce Willis and Ed Norton, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, a lot of great actors in this one. And <laughs> shout out to Ivy Cartel for the uh, cameo appearance here too. Commander Pierce. Yeah, it, it's funny because like Bill Murray and Francis McDormand, like I hear that they're in a movie together. I'm like, oh my God, power couple. They need to do a movie where they're good parents because <laughs> they're not great parents here. But great casts. I agree completely. Yeah. You brought up the framing quite a bit, and that was what stuck with me most after watching this. Is like, just the way he frames every shot in this is just there's so much that goes into it, and the object placement too. The way he uses his props is just pretty stellar. Um, all of his films are just really witty in a sense, and like Christian, you mentioned, he has a style. I I just don't know how to describe it other than like, it's Wes Anderson. You know, it's so unique. Mm-hmm. Not just the way his films look, but the the attitude they have. They have this kind of like jumpy atmosphere that goes along with the uh, Desplat score. Um, 
yeah, really good narrative at the center of this too. That's really fun to follow and appreciate too. I always say that Wes Anderson is the love child of mm. Stanley Kubrick and Hal Ashby because you take Hal Ashby's screenwriting, you know, think Harold and Maude. Harold and Maude could be a Wes Anderson movie. It, it would just be totally centered in every, in every scene. That's it. But the same type of quippy humor um, and then the display of certain things going on in the background, like the little kid jumping on the... Um, trampoline when they go off to the side to have the discussion and the focus is really on the discussion vocally but visually you see a kid jumping on trampoline and then in itself is comedy right there uh you mentioned the placement of everything uh that goes into his love of art as well uh the placement of music in this um not just as sound but physically and then also the use of books between the couple in the movie. So there's a lot of that just throughout the entire film. That's all it's in. If you get a copy of the screenplay, it's in the screenplay. So everything is so yeah. detailed and proper. Speaking placed. of the screenplay, it was co-written by Roman Coppola. Um, who's the, yeah, the nephew. The Coppola I say? blood. Yeah, it's rich. A Francis Ford. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Sophia's so. cousin. Um, and they they um, refer to it like the whole juvenile delinquency of it mm-hmm. is like uh, 400 blows. So there's a deep tie-in there with when they were writing it. So all that really comes to play and it does a yeah. good job at it. Listeners, really if like you have it. not yet seen the 400 blows, get to it as soon as possible because it's like premier coming of age story set in France. Homework. Yeah. I just felt really good after watching this movie. It's just a really nice little film to sit down and watch. So. I think, I think any Wes Anderson film is. That's true. It's funny. I, I remember when grand Budapest hotel came out, which is probably my favorite Wes Anderson. And we were sitting in mm. film class and some of the images they saw, and he's like, yeah, I don't really know what it's about, but I loved it. And the professor was like, it's about daddy issues. All of Wes Anderson's films are about daddy issues. And I get to thinking about it and I'm like, huh? Wow. Wow. All right. Christian, go ahead and lead us into our final film of the evening. Okay, I was pulling up these names so I get them right. Okay, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, directed by Stephen Chbosky, based on the book by Stephen Chbosky. Uh, He directed and wrote his own screenplay, so hey, great film. I mean, if you're able to do that, whatever. Uh, Zero nominations, unfortunately. Starring Logan Lerman as Charlie, and he is a... High school boy in the early 90s. He's been suffering from depression. He's finally sort of coming back from being away in a hospital, putting himself back into high school, where he's an outsider. He's a wallflower. He has a nice teacher, an English teacher, who sort of takes an interest in him, played by Paul Rudd. Very brief, minor role. He meets two people, outcast him themselves, Sam, played by Emma Watson, 
her really first big movie post Harry Potter. That was a big deal. And her stepbrother, Patrick, played by Ezra Miller, they sort of bring him into their circle of friends, proclaim him a wallflower, and he rides the waves of emotions with them. And he has sort of this inner, I wouldn't say inner demons, but there's this inner conflict with him because of something that happened in his personal life with him and his aunt that is the reason why he went to the hospital and the reason why he still sort of gets these moments where he will just break down. And it's such an emotionally tolling moment for the audience, for myself, for the kid. And yeah, it is another coming. It's like our, our third coming of age story. This is like a real, this is like the high school coming of age. So we've talked about the adult, the children, now the high school teenager coming of age story. And I picked this one for Toby because this is his favorite book. Awesome. Yes. And we did not watch it together because he told me he gets very emotional watching it. I was like, I don't want to see you cry. (laughs) It's easy to get emotional watching this one for sure. Yeah. Now, I must ask, was it Brett? No, was it was this my your second. first time watching this? I first okay, saw it right. um, my freshman year of college. so like about a year after it came out. It's like really, I mean, really prime time to watch it, really. And I actually appreciate it more this time. So, KB, what about you? Uh, this is the epitome if you want to something done right do it yourself i mean talk about perfect story killer soundtrack and the music here it it just it leads you through the scenes you know instead of you just having this music playing in the background you have the music kind of like dictating the scenes for you um i the one thing when i watch it this time is that the more and more we watch movies, especially as um, cinephiles, we forget the first time we see something and that reaction. So um, Christian was with me in that Hitchcock class, and I looked around for the majority of class first time they saw the shower mm-hmm. scene in Psycho. And I wanted to experience that with them. And there's a scene where they experience a, a Bowie song for the first time. And that was the scene that that really got me. When they're going through the tunnel? Yes, the tunnel song. Finding that tunnel song and not knowing what it is. Because I'm watching it, I'm like, how can you not know that song? But if you're, you know, 14 or 17 in the 2010s, you probably may not know it. And that was such a real scene to me. And this film is just filled with that, just real scenarios. Uh, great acting. You mentioned Emma Watson before coming out of the Harry Potter movies. Mae Whitman, who I love yes. in anything she does, is just, you know, she's she's just amazing in it. But just the scenarios that they're placed in, uh, the Rocky Horror stuff and everything, it just makes it such a well-rounded movie, which means it was probably a well-rounded film, so I can see how it's Toby's favorite. Yeah. I just love it. I I just throw it on sometimes when there's nothing else that I feel like watching. I just I keep it um, a digital copy on my on my 
player so I could just throw it on without any like trailers or anything popping up before it. I just want to get into the movie. So I, I love it. It's a five star nice. for me. This is like one of those great adaptations because I read the book and if you read the book, anybody out there, it takes a day. It is so short. It's so fast. And I believe it's told through more of like a diary entry, which is briefly put out there in the film. It's like Dear Friend. And then the rest of it is like the story. But I mean, Stephen Trabowski's adapting his own story to a screenplay. Like, you know, more authors should do that. Because yeah. he's getting like the heart, he's getting the heart and soul of what he wrote. Yeah. I had it on hold at my library and there are like three copies and none of them have been returned. So still a very popular book. You want to borrow sure. my copy? <laughs> Don't touch my copy. Christian, you mentioned this being like Emma Stone's first big role after Harry Potter. Do you remember how big of a deal it was for people when she cut her hair? Oh, no. Because like for what? she was Hermione and like Hermione always had this long hair. And I remember her saying like, I was saying oh. goodbye to Hermione. So I cut my hair. And then when I just remember when people first saw like the images of her with short hair, they were like, oh, my God, Emma Watson has short hair. Yeah. And then she started to grow back immediately because by what the next year with um, bling ring, I think she wore a wig. Yeah, hair. I I might be wrong, but I really? remember. I think I remember reading that she wore a wig in that one. I don't know. I could be wrong. And what what was uh, Spring Breakers? Was that around? Is she I've in Spring Breakers? I've always wanted to, but I know it had Selena Gomez. I don't know and Vanessa Hudgens, but no. Uh, this is the end. Oh, that was yeah. it. Oh. Her like brief, her, like brief cameo. Show. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to perks. I have to say, I I'm normally not a fan of Logan Lerman as an actor. I don't know if that's a bull take or not. I first saw him in 310 to Yuma and he kind of just like drove me crazy for the brief bit that he was in that movie. <laughs> And I wasn't a huge fan of him in Fury either. It's just something about the way he conveys emotions. But here, he is so damn good. I remember being like, what, yeah. what's going on? I don't normally like you as an actor, but this is like really, really good. And they all are. Ezra Miller is, um, I, I would say, the best performance in the film for sure. Um, um, the stop crying oh scene. Gosh. That's like really, it's it's very tough to watch, especially in context of why he can't stop crying and what he's thinking yeah. about. Like, I don't want to spoil it because this is like, if you're a high schooler, this is required reading slash viewing. It really is. Yeah. I, I always say there's not a lot in the 2010s as far as movies for uh, high school kids to look back. Um, I think I was referring at the time to Love, Simon. But this is definitely one of those having kids around that age, either in high school or getting ready to go into high school. They say this movie is the one that keeps coming back to them as kind of like a guideline for how do we fit in? You know, there's a line of welcome to the land of misfit toys. And whether you realize or not, pretty much that's the story of high school for everyone, even the popular kids. So they said they always remember this movie when they go through it. So 
that, that just tells you how true. Yeah, I, I actually thought about it. that. I remember you saying that when I watched this movie. And I'm like, wow, I wish I had seen this when I was in high school. So I feel like I just. Okay. Oh, no. I was just going to say this movie would have helped me so much in high school because it came out and right after I graduated. I want to say, like, if anybody's listening and you haven't seen this movie yet, I know, like, everything we described, it probably sounds really heavy, but it's also super sweet as well. Um, Emma and Ezra are just such great friends. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know, like it's almost like a melancholy feeling of like, will Charlie ever find friends like this again? Because they are so awesome. Um, but also just finding that sense of belonging. And there's just a lot of really sweet moments in this film that kind of intersperse with some of the more darker and um, heartbreaking moments that are throughout as well. Wish it would have received some nominations, at least one, but did receive the independent spirit award for best first feature. So that's, that's really big in the world of indies. The screenplay definitely deserves some shine for sure. Yeah. Check it out. Any other thoughts from you two on this movie before we get into our personal awards and whatnot? I'm glad I picked it. I am too. Me too. Great pick. Okay. Before we get into personal awards, if you listen to our 1950 episode, we made a little bit of a spotlight on how much time is spent watching these movies. And in 2007, our 2007 episode, we mentioned that Christian has the official Gilded Films records for films watched with 27. I'm happy to announce that Christian has broken this record with films from 2012. He watched 28 uh, for over 56 hours of viewing for this podcast. So I beat my record by one. I barely beat it. Oh my God. It took forever last night to finish that damn movie. Yeah. Between the three of us, we watched, um, over 134 hours of footage for this episode. So a lot goes into it and really appreciative for that. Okay. The time has come. Are we ready for our personal awards? Oh, honorable mentions. mentions. Sorry. Other films that came out in this year. We'll just briefly go through these, list these off. We have Skyfall, great James Bond movie that Twitter unfortunately did not pick. The best James Bond movie. I'm with you. Best uh, Daniel Craig. Yeah. Keep it moving. And best uh, James Bond song. So good. Adele. We have The Avengers that came out this year. This is a big year for superhero movies. You have The Avengers. You have The Dark Knight Rises. You have The Amazing Spider-Man. The beginning of the end. <laughs> this is where it began. We thought it was ending in 2012. No, it was just beginning. Um, the Hunger Games is a big phenomenon. Some animated films include Wreck-It Ralph, a great short film called Paper Man, Brave, Paranorman, Frankenweenie, as well as one called It's Such a Beautiful Day, which is really, really interesting. Oh my. Honestly, you talk about something so like existential crisis and wow, do I feel really bad about myself? Yeah. It's such a beautiful day. <laughs> like, I don't know how to react watching it. It was 
it was an experience. I'll just put it that way. You also had Bernie uh, from Richard Linklater, one of my favorite directors. End of Watch came out that year. The Invisible War, How to Survive a Plague, um, some documentaries. Both really, really hard-hitting topics. One about um, sexual abuse in the Army, The Invisible Ooh. War, the other of the AIDS crisis, and how it was pretty much ignored for How to Survive a Plague. Highly recommend yeah. both. Some other documentaries were The Imposter, as well as Searching for Sugar Man, which won Best Documentary. A film called No... Uh, from Pablo Lorraine. We mentioned it in the first part. Cloud Atlas uh, from the Wachowskis, right? God. Yeah, the, the Wachowski siblings, and then I guess there was another director, which apologies to that third director. I didn't know that, <laughs> but boy, that movie took me a long time to get through. Yeah. That, <laughs> never again. And then last but not least, a really, really awesome Ryan Johnson film called Looper came out this year. Highly recommend. We a really it. great science fiction film called Looper, directed by Ryan Johnson, the same man who did the Star Wars film. And one that I actually enjoyed. Yes. Um, I was actually really surprised by it. Like, it's so well written, and it's such a good sci-fi film. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, in this age of sequels and adaptations, you definitely don't see that happening often enough, so... As a sci-fi fan, I really welcomed it and enjoyed it. Yeah. I will also throw in their Magic Mike, Ooh, yeah. a movie not just about strippers, but about their lives. Thank you. I, I was pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed that movie to the point that I actually uh, went back uh, watching it at home and called my wife to watch the pony scene <laughs> again. So there's that. Channing Tatum is a underrated actor too it's so weird i didn't care about like the stripping stuff i cared about their personal lives yeah and 21 jump street speaking of channing tatum there we go i love 21 jump street which i had never seen before today oh so good so now i'm i'm, I'm excited to see the sequel because i used to watch the show the and it was really cool to see johnny depp and uh holly pete show up in it yes Okay, was uh, Holly Robinson Pete in the show? Yes, yeah. that's how okay, she came. Because I wondered why she was just in it, like a cameo. That's yeah. the oddest cameo. And it was cool because if you look on her shirt, that was her character's name, Hofts or whatever. So it was almost like this is their characters grown up, like they've graduated from the Jump Street uh, program, and now they're still cops, but now they're interacting <laughs> with the new Jump Street characters. So nice little uh, thumbs up right there. Yeah, check it out. Sequel is also quite good. Not as good, obviously, but worth a watch. Yeah. Any other honorable mentions? Or I might I might have some when we do our personals. Yeah. Me too. There we go. Let's jump into that. Um, let's start out with Christian. Why don't you get us going with the best original screenplay? Okay. <laughs> Uh, number five, I have Moonrise Kingdom. Number four, I have, because I love it so much, it's like one of their better modern uh, movies, I have Disney's Wreck-It Ralph. Ooh. Number three, I have Francis Ha. Number two, I have The Master. And after much consideration, number one, I have, because it's a great sci-fi movie, Looper. Ooh. Mm. 
I like that. Okay. Um, I had at number five, Moonrise Kingdom. Number four, I had Django Unchained. Great dialogue despite my issues with it. Number three, I have Looper. Number two, I have Amore. And number one, I have The Master. And KB, what, what did you have? I have Moonrise Kingdom as far as original screenplay. Perfect. All right, Christian, moving on to Adapted. All right, Adapted. I have number five, Beasts of the Southern Wild, four, Lincoln, three, Life of Pi, two, Silver Lanks Playbook, and number one, the winner, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Mm, That's mine as well. All right. Number five, I have 21 Jump Street. Whoa. (laughs) It's hilarious. Number four, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Wow. Number three, Lincoln. Number two, Bernie. And number one, Silver Linings Playbook. I disagree. (laughs) Fair enough. You know, the thing, though, Silver Lang's playbook was adapted from a bad book, so I have to That's give a true. for that. Yeah. Okay, moving on to Best Supporting Actor. Christian, who you got? All right, number five, I got Mr. Tommy Lee Jones for Lincoln. Number four, Ezra Miller for The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Number three, Samuel L. Jackson for Django. Number two, Leonardo for Django. And my winner is the late, great, Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master. Can't complain. KB, what you thinking? Um, well, I went pretty chalk, so I had to go with Christoph Waltz and Django. But definitely mm-hmm. I would add that uh, Hoffman in The Master is excellent, excellent, excellent. Very nice. My number five is Javier Bardem for Skyfall. Oh my gosh, I, I I had so much trouble debating if I wanted to put him or not, and he probably would have came in there somewhere, but I I couldn't do it. This is an extremely difficult category. I really, yeah. I almost cry leaving some people out. Uh, number four, I have Christoph Waltz for Django Unchained. Number three, I have Robert De Niro for Silver Linings Playbook. Number two, Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master. And number one, Leonardo for Django. And I knew you were leaning that way from the last episode. Mm-hmm. Notice I didn't have Robert and I didn't have Christoph. I did notice that. You had Ezra and Samuel L. who were like my ones that I debated between those. So. Because I'm controversial. I like, I like the way you mix it up. Yeah. All right, Best Supporting Actress. All right, number five, I have Helen Hunt for The Sessions. She was so good in that. Yes, an honorable mention here, The Sessions, a uh, man in an iron lung uh, wants to have sex for the first time and hires a sex therapist played by Miss Hunt to sort of help him along and guide him. It's a nice little funny movie. It's short. She is super good in it, so I put her in here. Here's a little hint that I gave you earlier, but Mickey Sumner for Francis Ha, who plays mm-hmm. Francis's right. friend slash roommate. Uh, I think especially the latter part of her role is really good when she comes back 
it doesn't really tell Francis, and they have sort of like a little, you know, little fight. Uh, number three, Sally Field for Lincoln. Number two, Samantha Barks for Les Mis, playing Eponine. And number one, Anne Hathaway for Les Miserables. Yeah, Anne Hathaway is my pick as well. Very nice. My number five is Samantha Barks for Les Mis. Number four, Jackie Weaver for Serenity. Crabby Snacks and Homemades. It's iconic. (laughs) Number three, Amy Adams for The Master. Number two, Sally Field for Lincoln. And number one, once again, Clean Sweep, Anne Hathaway for Les Miserables. Ding, ding, ding. Can't deny it. All right, leading actor. Me, okay. Number five, Jean-Louis Trenjant. I said that wrong. For Amour. Joaquin Phoenix for The Master. Logan Lerman for The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Bradley Cooper for Silver Linings Playbook. And my number one, of course, Jonah Hill for 21 Jump Street. Oh, excuse me. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis for Lincoln. I was wondering when one of those would pop up. KB, who you got? I actually have two here. Um, I, I keep trying to go back and forth. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis, top for sure, but very close behind. You, you really have to look at Joaquin's performance in The Master, mm-hmm. and then right after that, you have to look at Bradley Cooper and Silver Linings Playbook. So those yeah. are my top three in top three order. All right. My number five is Jack Black for Bernie. Ooh. Honestly, might be his best performance. Check it out. Uh, number four, I have John Louis. Not even going to try the last name for a more. Number three, Joaquin Phoenix for The Master. Number two, Bradley Cooper, Silver Linings. And of course, number one, once again, Daniel Day-Lewis for Lincoln. All right, Christian, best leading actress. All right. Little Quavenjane Wallace for Beast of the Southern Wild at number four. Emma Watson for The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I had trouble putting her in either lead or supporting, mm-hmm. but she is definitely lead. I think you went in the right direction. Yeah. Um, number three, Jessica Chastain for Zero Dark Thirty. Number two, Greta Greta Gerwig for Francis Ha. And number one, Jennifer Lawrence for Silver Linings Playbook. Very nice. KB, who'd you go with? Well, I... We, we spoke so much uh, discussing Amora that, you know, you can't really take away from Emmanuel Riva's performance, even though uh, Jean-Louis had a better one. But I would say that, but Jennifer Lawrence definitely was the best actress of the year. Very nice. My number five is little Quivenjane Wallace for Beasts of the Southern Wild. Number four, Emmanuel Riva for Amour. Number three, Jessica Chastain, Zero Dark Thirty. Number two, Greta Gerwig for Francis Ha. And number one, Jennifer Lawrence. Christian, did we have the exact same? Wait. Almost. Readers again? I think so. Clavangene five, Riva four, Chastain three, Gerwig two, Jennifer one. Pretty much. It's a first. Oh, that's right. You had Emma. You had Emma. Yeah. Yeah. You had Emma in there. Short memory. Okay. I noticed that we got 
we had a clean sweep on three of the acting awards and then none of us agreed on supporting actor. So tight race. Just like in 2013, because there was like a three-way split. Yeah, we could have went with any of them, really. Yeah. I remember not knowing who was going to win. Like, I predicted Kristoff, but I was like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Controversy. Best director. Christian, what you got? Here we go. Notice the one Academy Award winning movie that is like, has not been mentioned in any of my stuff yet. So here's the big chance. At number five, Ryan Johnson for Looper. Mm. At number four, Sam Mendes for Skyfall. Number three, Steven Spielberg for Lincoln. Number two, Catherine Bigelow for Zero Dark Thirty. And number one, Vang Lee for Life of Pi. Damn. All right. Confirms the Oscar win. KB? This is where I actually had three. I, I had Catherine Bigelow coming in at number three for Zero Dark Thirty. I had uh, Ang Lee coming in at number two. And then for director, I had to go with Paul Thomas Anderson for The Master. Just to switch it up a bit. That's fair. Okay. I, I really struggled with this one, but this is what I got. Number five, Ben Affleck for Argo. D- Whoa. There it is. Whoa. I'm giving him the justice he should have gotten back then. But so low. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Number four, Catherine Bigelow for Zero Dark Thirty. Number three, David O. Russell for Silver Linings Playbook. Number two, Quentin Tarantino for Django Unchained. And now a two-time Best Director winner for Brett's Personal Awards. Number one is Paul Thomas Anderson for The Master. I guess Ang Lee doesn't exist in your universe. You know, it, 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 it came down. Does. <laughs> exactly. Exact, it came down to I was much more enthralled by the visual effects and than his actual direction. So, But I'm with you. He's up there. Just wait till we get to 2005 and Brett will be like, let's see. Crash wasn't that bad. Oh Ooh. my gosh. I don't want to do that one. I'll, I'll sit out on that one. <laughs> anyway. Are we ready for best picture? Yeah. All right. Christian. All right. Here we go. You're going to be surprised. All right. So number 10. Make sure I got my stuff here. Number 10, Lincoln. Number 9, Moonrise Kingdom. Number 8, a film we have not spoken about yet. The Central Park Five. A documentary by Ken and Sarah Burns about the Central Park Five incident. I saw it last year. It is a great documentary. Oh, my God. There you go. On my list. Number 7, Looper. Number 6, Paranorman. Um... Great animated feature. If you like classic horror films, right along those lines. Number five, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Number four, Brett's going to be shocked here. Number four, Life of Pi. What? Number three, Skyfall. Number two, Wreck-It Ralph. And my number one of 2012 
is Silver Linings Playbook. Wow. Catch my breath a little bit. Are, are you for real? You're not. I told you my best okay. picture nominee. I I told you my best picture nominee. My best picture nominees do not reflect my personal top That's, ten. I didn't mention that. That's true. Yeah, I I have one of those as well because I have the best picture, not Silver Linings Playbook, but Life of Pi. Wow, interesting. Okay. Just to switch it up a bit, I mean. It's a total picture. All right. Well, I'm not going to lie. I did both of mine just by personal preference. So number 10. Keep in mind, I, I did think this was a pretty awesome year. So that's just me. Number 10, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Number 9, 21 Jump Street. Number <laughs> 8, Bernie. Number 7, Argo. Number 6, Looper. Number five, Amore. Number four, Django Unchained. Number three, The Master. Number two, Skyfall. And number one, Silver Linings Playbook, of course. Woohoo! There you have it, folks. Big winners. Murder, of- she wrote. <laughs> Life of Pi and Silver Linings Playbook are the big winners of the gilded films awards of 2012 and ben affleck is like back there somewhere being like wait what about me uh finally receiving his best director nomination from red nomination not win i'll expect a tweet at me no um okay any closing thoughts on this year in general or the oscars kind of a kind of a dismal year interesting i don't know like there was there's more non-nominated movies that made me feel happy than the word nominated ones so there is uh one documentary that i'd like to mention that we didn't discuss in either episode which is a band called death check it out it's really really interesting It's about a group of uh, black punk rockers that created an entire scene that a lot of people today, unless they're really deep into that scene, really don't know about. It's definitely worth a watch. I would would put it as one of my top movies of the year. Wow. Okay. Sounds good. Once again, folks, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Gilded Films Podcast. Please feel free to rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, as well as check out our website, gildedfilms.com. Give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Christian here is basically our social media manager, so all the cool stuff that shows up on there is mostly his doing. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks to Joshua Arnoldi once again for composing our theme music that appears at the beginning and the end. And of course, like always, thank you to my esteemed co-host Christian, as well as to our guest KB. We always enjoy having on with us. Always enjoy being here. Thanks for having me again. All right. Well, we are signing off and we will be back next time to discuss the films of 1985. So be looking out for it. The films of 1985, a year in which Obama called a soundproof of God. 
And with that, we bid adieu. Good night.